0: welcome listeners to another episode of DST's Charity Questions and today we've got special guest Steve Cook with us and uh, Steve brings us a lot of experience working with The Guardian and with Third Sector uh, and he's also written a, a new book recently, uh, What Have Charities Done For Us alongside Tanya Mason and, and we want to talk about these things today. So welcome Steve and thank you for joining us on, on the podcast. Hi, great to have you here. Thank you great so Steve I, I want to jump straight in just a little bit about your career and of course you you've been a journalist for a long time and you've got a lot of experience in that field I'm admiring all the books behind you if anybody isn't watching this uh, there's Steve's in a great library I guess you could call it is it in your home Steve it's, it looks like a nice spot
1: it is yeah it's a lifetime accumulation of me and my wife
0: amazing amazing and of course you're also an author um, in a novel sense as well as non-fiction and i want to talk to you about that as well but on the on the journalism side of things then uh, over your career how did journalism change how did you see journalism change
1: immensely really when i started in um, 1971 um, you had a notebook and a pencil and you learned shorthand and um you had to show that your pencil had worn down to about an inch before you could trade it in for a new one from the stores department and um and of course it was hot metal printing in those days Mm. and on my first evening paper towards the end of the afternoon there would be this sort of thundering sound and the building began to shake and that was the rotary letter presses starting up in the basement and running through the afternoon to produce the evening paper so that's what it was like then but of course um Oh, uh, you are out on a story, and you'd have to uh, find a phone box to ring in. And sometimes on a, on a busy story, lots of journalists they'd have to queue. And, and if you were abroad, you'd have to um, make arrangements at the telex office to get an international connection. That sort of thing. This all sounds like ancient. I love that. History, really. I love it. No, I did. It is. Yeah. But in the nineties, of course, there was a sort of um, technological revolution. Big confrontations with the print unions and the Murdoch press and so on. Mm-hmm. And, um, new technology came in and um, it was all transformed. And um, nowadays, of course, you have, um, you have an iPhone. Um, you, short time isn't nearly so essential. Mm. Uh, you, can, you can record things immediately, you can, you can do uh, videos and um, there's no such thing as a deadline anymore. The deadline is as soon as it happens because you have 24-hour rolling news Absolutely. and everything can be done almost instantly. Mm, um, I That's mean, a big one, actually, yeah. The last, the last time I ever filed a story from the phone box, uh, I remember very strongly, it was 1992, when Winter Castle was on fire and everyone rushed out to uh, see the flames being doused. And that was my last phone box. And it's such a relief not having to do that. You can now ring anywhere in the world, mm-hmm. at any moment, video links as well.
0: And it's just astonishing. That is amazing, isn't it? And of course, it's instantaneous. But that's a lot of pressure as well, I guess, for for journalists to keep that pace up.
1: Well, it is, because you've got so many different outlets. Because as well, if you're a print journalist, you also do um, podcasts and Mm. tweets. And as I say, as soon as it happens, you can get it out there and you're under pressure to do so. And that's... um, uh, it puts a lot of demands on journalists' time and uh, integrity, really. Uh, temptation to cut corners, really, and to, uh, um, uh, and to just say whatever you can uh, as soon as you can at the expense of proper research. Absolutely.
0: What, what, what do you think we can do about that? Is, well, that's a big question, isn't it? But what, what could, steps can we take to kind of try and limit those effects?
1: Well, I think hold fast to the ethical standards of, of journalism. Mm. And um, the proprietors of organizations and the National Union journalists and people like that have a responsibility to hold fast to those standards, especially in the age of social media, where anybody can say anything publicly, um, not necessarily uh, to a very high standard of accuracy. Mm. And that produces that problem where people just live in echo chambers and aren't properly exposed to rigorous, balanced and independent journalism. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And I, I see it in myself. I, I follow similar people to my ideals and it's very easy to get inflamed continuously on the right, on your side of the argument, isn't it? When you only see.
1: Hmm. I think it's a great corrective to, to read um, organs that you don't necessarily agree with politically.
0: Absolutely. I actually, yeah, force myself to follow people on Instagram that I don't agree with because potentially that will give me education in that space and maybe make me more informed, but that's not easy to do, is it? Actively we do it, yeah. So what about charities then? Where do charities sit in this space now? When we think of, you just mentioned social media, the development there, trying to be ethical in the way that we share news, but what about the ways that charities might use these tools and social media? How has that impact, impacted the charity world?
1: Well, I think there are great opportunities there because it gives charities, like everybody else, um, many more ways to um, reveal to the world what they're doing and and how they're doing it. Um, tweets and blogs and websites and so on. And um, uh, they, these are all different ways to advertise their presence and uh, new ways to communicate with their supporters as well. Mm. And... Um, it is resource intensive, you know, it's not easy to do all this and to do all this kind of thing well. And you have to remember that also, um, there, are, there are also pitfalls in the yeah. sense that um, injudicious tweets and, um, and, and blogs uh, can get out there and, and cause you trouble. And, um, and the same is true of emails, actually, because they're all disclosable in cases, whichever, uh, if they ever come to court um i'm thinking really of uh, just first of all of islamic relief worldwide we've got an example in our book where um the times was fed by somebody some opponent presumably uh some tweets that two of their trustees had put out in 2015 that mm-hmm. were very um harshly critical of israel shall we say and um it was a huge embarrassment and of course but fortunately they took quick remedial action, they, um, the trustees were, were dismissed, they got a new trustees and they recruited Brilliant. the former attorney general, Dominic Grieve, to oversee their um, uh, their procedures for recruiting trustees. Mm. That's a good example of how the social media can be a danger <laughs> as well as a boon. You've got to be very disciplined in your use of social media. It feels, feels very free and spontaneous and everything, but if you're too free and spontaneous, it can land you in hot water.
0: Yeah, I guess it's nice to see some real life consequences, though. I, maybe that example I don't know much about, but other examples of people tweeting inflammatory <laughs> tweets and, and then actually seeing kind of real life consequences to that. It's maybe the world's catching up a little bit. Yes. Particularly a little, probably still got a way to go. Um, but yeah. Yes.
1: One thing well, and the thing about social media and, 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 and tweeting and even emails, it feels so ephemeral. Mm. But actually, it's permanent. <laughs> mm. It's mm. more there it's more stuck there than anything in print these days yeah well
0: how, how did that impact that and when you're at third sector um how did that impact the social media growth the way that the third sector operated
1: um well it was that thing that we mentioned earlier on uh, of mm. the the deadline is now as soon as yeah. it happens you can you can get things out there um and I was always a bit of a stick in the mud because I'm being more traditionalist. I would want to to wait and to check and ask for the other side of the story before we actually went ahead and, and published. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be honest, to um, be sort of ageist against myself, the younger members of staff handled all this kind of thing so much better than me. Mm-hmm. They're much better at the technology and um, they're much swifter in the way they did things enough yeah and
0: maybe it's a little bit about that isn't it just giving the responsibility to people that uh, yeah
1: digital natives
0: oh yeah exactly (laughs) interested and kind of grown up with it and it's yeah it's it's, we're all kind of adapting aren't we to this new technology that that comes through and i'm sure it'll be the same thing for my generation when there's something else in the future it'd be the vr headsets won't it and we won't it's going to be a long way to go i think with technology um so, if, so you were kind of reporting on the charity sector from out, kind of not necessarily outside. The third sector is obviously an integral part of the charity sector, but also when your time at the Guardian, and was it hard not to to have a bias to the charity sector when you were reporting
1: on things? Um, when I worked at the Guardian, I didn't often do stories about charities, and I didn't have much in-depth knowledge. And when I went to third sector, I began to uh, understand things. Uh, a lot more and how things worked. And um, yeah, I suppose it um, gave me a certain um, bias in their favor, but I hope I managed to retain certain objectivity. And I'm not a um, starry-eyed about charities. I mean, there are problems and pitfalls and, um, and scandals from time mm. to time. Mm. But in the scale of things, um, those are um, smaller in proportion than certain parts of the national media might that- might want you to believe by the way they really go to town on scandal stories and aren't necessarily very strong on the uh, day-to-day good work kind of stories.
0: Absolutely yeah and it does seem to be an interesting Kind of talking point for organisations in in media, doesn't it? The charities and situations like that. Um, so I, I have got a, a question from Deborah, straight from the our CEO at DSC, and she has asked me to ask you if she was your favourite columnist when you were at third sector, and
1: she was really <laughs> <laughs> not, not least, not least because. Right of... answer, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because of her um, her capacity for. Um, renewal and uh, and delivery. She always has um, uh, plenty of ideas. I mean, she's still going strong, and, and I think she started with us in 2005, something like that. And um, and and the great thing about Deborah is she doesn't hold back. She gives it herself. Mm. She doesn't um, uh, pussyfoot around. Um, exactly. Diplomacy, probably not her strongest point. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, hard-hitting and, and, and vivid and um, and an exciting read, I think, those times.
0: Definitely, definitely. No, I've learned a lot from her writing style and obviously her behaviour, maybe in terms of what not to do sometimes, but also, yeah, how to have kind of gumption and to, to go forward. Yeah, nice. I'm sure she'll be happy to hear that. And we didn't pay Steve to say that. <laughs> Great. So uh, moving to kind of think about the book, you mentioned one of the stories from the book there earlier. I'm hoping we get a few more stories. Um, so, But what prompted you and Tanya uh, to sit down and actually write the book?
1: It was actually a suggestion by Joe Saxton, who is one of the co-founders of NFP Synergy. I think he's now bowing out now. But he's, um, I mean, NFP Synergy, is sort of a research consultancy, as you know, okay. which, um, done, done an enormous amount of work in the voluntary sector, surveys and so on. And um, I think Tanya and I decided to do it because we both spent more than a decade getting very, very immersed in this big and complex world of charities. Mm. Uh, I think we wanted, um, we, I mean, we'd realised that it is what somebody once called it a loose and baggy monster. It's very hard <laughs> to define it, it down. Um, I think we wanted to try and put um, a kind of format or a definition. Uh, on this loose and baggy model, mm. to bring it under control for um, for a general reader, not a specialist reader. So that anyone yeah. interested in the world of charities, it kind of yeah. serves as a as an introduction. We were very heartened recently, actually, because we heard that your bookshop, actually at the DSC, had sold a number of copies to um, uh, to a charity that wanted to give it to their new trustees as a way of introducing them to the sector.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's where we're hopefully seeing a lot of readers really learning taking on information. People who may be, as you said, a general reader new to the sector. Maybe they're coming in as a trustee with experience from outside of the charity sector. But, yeah, it gives that context, doesn't it? Nice. I I love that, Stephen. And we're definitely grateful to be able to stock the book and sell it. And it has been popular. So what, what is the best thing that maybe you found out? Maybe Tanya's got a different one. I'm not sure you might know that. But for you, what was the best thing you found out when producing the book?
1: I think it was the, the responsiveness of the charity world, the voluntary sector. Mm. We'd, we'd more or less finished okay. the book when when COVID struck and our publishers said, could you please uh, revisit <laughs> what you've written in the in light of COVID? And what, what we found, of course, was that there had been um, a very quick response by charities, all mm. kinds of things, like food banks uh, gearing up, uh, domestic abuse charities really getting into care because people being isolated at home. Um, that was that was uh, a difficulty, um, and all kinds of community support organisations springing up, not necessarily as formal charities, but mm. was just part of that um, uh, wider voluntary sector. And um, one of the things that really impressed was the Royal Voluntary Service recruited something like seven hundred thousand people, I think, mm. to I be. Um, uh, to be online supporters of people who were um, self-isolating or who needed deliveries of food or medicines and that kind of thing. And, and that, that organisation is still going strong. I get emails from every week. They've really developed. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that um, epitomised really what the voluntary sector is all, all about. It's people responding to the needs of those around
0: them. Absolutely absolutely and sometimes not even the charities some of the smaller businesses and organizations finding that agility and kind of losing their their ability to serve their their
1: yes the charities and quasi charities and and voluntary organizations that aren't necessarily registered or formally set up hmm
0: yeah, I love that, and uh, that must have been a daunting prospect. Here's this lovely manuscript completed, and yes, please can you just add on this little bit about COVID?
1: <laughs> but, a bit of a shocker.
0: Yeah, but a great opportunity as yeah. well. And and actually talking about writing books, um, so you've written five novels, is that right? Five? Yes. Books? Yes. Some time ago. That's what you said. Yeah. Great. And so, uh, as someone that's interested in writing myself, um, how would you approach? Particularly, writing maybe a novel compared to writing non-fiction. What are the different approaches you take there?
1: Well, I think the similarities and there are differences. I think the, the biggest difference, of course, is uh, the question of fact. Because when you're writing a non-fiction book, yes, you can argue a case, but your um, your your overarching responsibility is, is is to the facts, and so you've got to uh, check and and be accurate in non-fiction works. Mm. Fiction, by contrast, is um, is nirvana, because you can just make it all up. <laughs> I mean, with, within limits, obviously, it's got to have plausibility. And if it's set in a certain time or place, then factual accuracy does um, does play a part as well. Yeah. So th- those are the differences. I mean, it's the difference between freedom and enslavement to the facts. Mm. Um, but the similarities are very strong as well, because no text really works. Uh, unless it has um, uh, form, structure, a logical sequence, it's engaging, uh, and it all hangs together. And I think that that that's what's called readability, really. And mm-hmm. I think that it's absolutely vital in in both kinds of writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. it's
0: true, isn't it? it's absolutely, can we write something with brevity, but still gets across what we're trying to say, and I think, yeah, the facts when it comes to nonfiction, super yes, important. Yes, well.
1: you've got to engage people's imagination and or their um, intellectual interest. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you've got to use a few tricks of the trade, really. Mm. Um, uh, it's, it's so easy to allow uh, a factual narrative to become a long and boring recital of the facts without any kind of real um, structure or highlights and lowlights to kind of mm. take people along with you.
0: Definitely, definitely. So if we're thinking then on the non-fiction side of things, we're, we're talking about charities, let's go back to some charities maybe in the stories that they tell. And if you, you're a journalist and, and I'm a charity, someone that's working for a charity, and I want you to notice me, Steve. I want you to notice my story and and not my fiction story, but my non-fiction story, my beneficiary's tale or the data that that, that I'm collecting on these projects that I'm running. How can I get you to notice me, Steve?
1: Well, in in journalism, there's this old saying that um, dog bites man, no story. Man bites dog, that's a big story. (laughs) And um, because it's unusual, because it stands out and it's against the grain. So anything that, or oh, Kelvin McKenzie, former register of the Sun, used to say um, um, news is anything that makes you go wowee.
0: Man bites <laughs> dog. I'm still, I'm still on man bites dog. <laughs> it works.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the unusual, the um the out of the ordinary um, always mm. works as a way into catching people's imaginations. And the other thing is um, uh, the, the power of the. Um, of the human, really, the experience of individuals. Um, it may be tragic, it might be positive and sort of heartwarming, but mm-hmm. um, those are the stories that I think that, that charities can tell in order to um, arouse interest uh, and support uh, in, in, in what they do. And I think it, I think it helps if they have um, somebody in their organisation, a trustee or a supporter or a member of staff, who is media savvy, who has either some experience of these things or who, who has an instinct for it and knows mm. how to put their finger on it and say, that will work well, so, let's do that on our website. Um, and uh, just sort of don't hold back on the, uh, the human interest stories.
0: I love that you call it an instinct. It is almost an instinct, isn't it? Yeah, Being able to pick up on that moment and present that story in a way that can change the world potentially um so what one thing i wanted to know and i i try and follow that advice when i'm talking to people as as a fundraising trainer by getting the beneficiary story out there but i also have funders and people who fundraise talk to me and say well they also really care about the role presented like the macro kind of level the wider project data all of that kind of high level stuff how many beneficiaries and all that kind of thing and what do you think is more impactful to read as a journalist, a story about one person or potentially a story of a wider project creating kind of with the bigger data there?
1: I think you need both. No, okay. I can't well, say that. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's on the one hand on the other, but I think it's true. I think you need the particular and the personal and the individual human stories and so on to catch people's attention, draw people in, but you need to set that um, in a matrix and the background of uh, factual information um, facts and figures pie charts and stuff and there's a great skill in presenting all that um, absolutely uh in a, in a cogent and comprehensible way i mm. of interested i was looking at the website of the british red cross earlier today um and i had a look at their annual report and they do that kind of thing quite well you know mm. every, every page has uh, a person is either a volunteer uh, or a beneficiary or someone else who's involved with the charity just just to sort of know bit of their experience and the nature of their involvement and then yeah. against it you have uh, the, the the what you might call the regulatory background um yep. <laughs> to satisfy the uh the, the charity commission and and your funders that you're using money well and that you're um treating your staff properly and all that kind of thing
0: amazing amazing yes i think that's that's it isn't it you said that it is both Let's get that story. Let's get people, maybe the hook potentially is, is the individual yes. story, but in the context, well, hold on a second. It's not just this. We're yeah. doing this as well. Yeah, I love that. And in terms of the future of charitable campaigning, uh, what does it look
1: like to you, Steve? Um, Rather hesitant okay. and rather sort of circumscribed. Yeah. Um, I mean, charities can campaign uh, quite freely on on, a lot of subjects and needn't worry about things which aren't particularly contentious you know whether it's the um, i don't know certain aspects of protecting the environment or the welfare of donkeys and things like that um not really too much to worry about but those charities that are involved in or to a better phrase changing the world or mm. changing the law people who uh, you know, charities whose work leads them to feel that things need to change Particularly, the law needs to be changed, and campaigning on what is essentially um, a, a political front like mm. that uh, is hedged about with difficulties for charities. I mean, the um, the guidance of the Charity Commission, for example. Um, can I just uh, read out a little bit? Um, Please, yeah, that would be great. Uh, to illustrate um, the problem, political campaigning or political activity must be undertaken by charities only in the context of supporting the delivery of charitable purpose of their charitable purpose mm. in other words you can't support a political party in general but if there's an aspect of a political party's um, policy that you as a charity support because of your work as a charity yes you can go back you can go in behind that and campaign for it um, but it's a very very tricky area and politicians mm. always extremely uh, sensitive about it all. And there is, of course, the Lobbying Act of, of 2014, which imposes strict limits on the amount of money that charities can spend on mm-hmm. anything which can be uh, perceived to be intending to inf- to alter the opinion of, of voters. That's and right. that had a hugely chilling effect on charities, and I don't think it's it's gone away. I think charities mm. Very nervous about kind of campaigning which involves that sort of political interface. Um, it's particularly difficult for charities that receive any public funding because um, grant agreements nowadays include um very sort of, they've been weakened actually, because yeah. of the um, backlash by charities who argued their case very strongly. But there's still sort of very tight um, restrictions on whether publicly funded charities. Uh, Can get involved in any kind of campaigning
0: yeah and i think it's nice to see that one going in the right direction as well steve maybe they'll be lessened even more as we go forward but yeah it's still a massive concern isn't
1: it that one yes so i mean the short answer is that um the the future of charity campaigning is um is is unfortunately quite tentative (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: okay and you mentioned the charity commission there as well and, and i just wondered if you had any thoughts on um, the new chair, Orlando
1: Fraser, in his role. Well, he's um, he certainly started with um, all the right um, all the right noises. He's uh, determined to be um, independent from government and so on. And he does have um, quite a lot of experience. I mean, he's been a board member of the Charity Commission for years, 2013 to 17, and he has apparently been very heavily involved in. Um, one of the charities supporting the victims of the Grenfell Tower disaster. Mm -hmm. It's called the the Rugby Portobello Trust. Mm -hmm. And so he's clearly um, a charity person uh, through and through. Um, However, um, when he was uh, a member of the Charity Commission board, uh, I think there were a couple of, you might call, missteps, in the sense that um, although he was the legally qualified board member um, the Commission's guidance on the 2016 referendum um, was so badly drafted really that they had to withdraw it under criticism from um, from lawyers mm. uh, and and um, and reissue it and and Fraser also in some emails that were released in a court case um, was rather kind of um, hot-headed in the sense that he um, he suggested that the Commission should start a, a statutory a statutory investigation into the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust, even while saying that such an investigation could be open to legal challenge. Mm. Now, it, it was a case that involved, um, involved terrorism and therefore some very sort of heightened feelings. Mm-hmm. So it might be understandable in that sense, but it was a bit injudicious. Um, it was some time ago and um uh now is a different uh, now is a different day and as i say he certainly has sounded um very passionate in his um advocacy of the charity sector in his recent Absolutely. statements and so we'll just have to wait and see really um handsome is as handsome does but the um unfortunately the, the appointment of the um chair of the charity commission has um has changed um, ever since the 2006 Charity Act. And Andrew Hind, who was um, Chief Executive of the Commission for um, a number of years, I think it was until about 2012, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he basically, if I'm, if you don't mind me just quoting.
0: Please, that, Steve. No, i can't you did, yeah. okay.
1: Um He said um, in the media a little while, that slowly but surely, surely over a series of appointments we've moved from the chair of the charity commission being selected on merit to a situation where the job appears to be little more than a party political appointment in the gift of the prime minister mm. and mm. i think that um Orlando fraser's um appointment comes in 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 that kind of context i mean he was a conservative party candidate um for the election i think i think he was um it was back in 2005 he wasn't successful, successful obviously and he says he is now party politically neutral which is which is fine
0: fine um, okay yeah it's a there's it a lot of changes, isn't it but as you say we uh, good steps other steps and <laughs> we'll, we'll wait and see how it, how it goes um so to, to just to uh, remind uh, listeners then about the, the book you've written that we're obviously selling at DSC uh, and it's doing really well at the moment. What have charities ever done for us with uh, Tanya as well? So I mentioned that you can get it from DSC. Is it available anywhere else, Steve? Where can people get your books?
1: Oh, well, the publishers, Policy Press in yep. Bristol. Cool. And as they say, any good bookshop will get one for you. Perfect, perfect.
0: And is there any other books you wanted to mention, Steve? Send our listeners in the direction of
1: um, you mean uh, to Click do specifically the with, yes, that's right, to do specific <laughs> charities. Like, if you want to recommend one of your
0: novels, that would be great as well. I'm, I'm happy for you to recommend anything, Steve, because it's your space.
1: <laughs> well, at the moment, what I'm really getting into is a book called Powers and Thrones by Dan Jones, cool. which is a huge but beautifully written um, account of uh, the Middle Ages generally. And it just <laughs> illustrates what we were talking about earlier. About the necessity of clarity and structure. I mean, we're a huge canvas: the Middle Ages, mm, decline of mm. the Roman Empire until I don't know about 1500, say. Um, yeah. Absolutely immense subject matter, but he's mm-hmm. organised it in such a way that it's a page-turner. It's brilliant. Mm. I, so I, I, uh, I definitely recommend that. i always bear the imprint of the last book I've been
0: yeah no i'm familiar to that the power of thrones i like that i like that i remember being a big fan of well it's slightly before that time but sapiens just being a mind changer yeah. for me and there's a, i know there's a lot of my knowledge is in the last twelve thousand years my knowledge is probably uh, not, not so great that sounds like a good one the power of thrones yeah yeah but
1: sapiens is fantastic as well in, in that way as well a good organization it is the organization isn't it
0: sometimes and another another one i remember reading a couple of years ago i'm not sure if you saw this one but never split the difference do you remember the it's so it's uh, an fbi lead terrorist negotiator for 15 years and i think it's I think he's called Chris Voss, I think is the name, but he actually employed an author to write the book for him. And so each chapter is very well summarised and all very well written. It's one of the clearest books I've ever read in my life, but it's yes. because it's not written by... Yes,
1: yeah, it's, yeah.
0: It's by Oh, yeah, individual.
1: The Virtues of a Ghostwriter. Well, yes.
0: it's, yeah, it's, and it was all very open. It was both of them wrote together, but I remember yes. thinking that was actually just so succinct, never split the difference Um there i always recommend it to people who manage staff because there's it's really scary how many similarities there are between terrorist negotiation and actually managing people and <laughs> working with individuals uh, so it's one i recommend to the managers they're going to have a great book. oh really
1: yeah, um, yeah.
0: so steve uh, it can uh, our listeners follow you anywhere do you get involved in the social media world or how can people kind of uh, keep up with
1: anything you might be doing i'm afraid i don't because not being a digital native i okay. don't I don't have um, a, a website or a Twitter handle, anything like that. I'm, um, I tend to rather hide from it, although I am an avid um, online reader and user of, um, of websites. Absolutely,
0: yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming and joining us today, Steve, and I'm looking forward to sharing this with our, our listeners. So I appreciate you joining us as a guest on DSC Charity Questions.
1: Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure
0: thank you for watching charity questions by the directory of social change so this is the podcast where we bring charity experts to you and we ask them the questions that you provide us via social media so if you want to get involved please check out the directory of social change on instagram twitter or linkedin and of course to hear more about this content and to learn more about charity questions subscribe
1: to our youtube channel now and of course like this video to let us know if you enjoyed it thank you very much for watching cheers